Pastor Nathan Carter. Wasn't quite sure where you're going there, Doug. If you knew this was my last sermon or something like that. But it, yes, this makes sense. It's uh, the Apostle John is an old man writing these, uh, these words, and they are full of wisdom indeed. Let me read them to you. This is 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 to 20. They're up on the screen. Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how you know, we know, that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going out showed that none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. This is God's Word. It's great to be back with you again uptown. I love this place. I love this people. And I love uh, dreaming with you about what God is going to be doing in the next chapter that's coming. Uh, thanks for having me back. The last time I was with you was on May 17th. And I remember listening to the radio as I was coming here and hearing the uh, uh, announcement that Illinois had just surpassed 4,000 COVID deaths that weekend. Well, here I am. I'm back. It's over doubled that already since the last time we were together. Since the last time that I was here, we've seen a lot happen, right? Uh, racial tensions, uh, fomenting. We, we saw riots, businesses boarded up. Uh, Chicago's been through a lot. Uh, Nearby cities have been through a lot. Now we're seeing, as we prayed already, uh, wildfires, hurricanes. And we can just go on and on and on. 2020 has been something. Could it be any more obvious as we look at the world around us? Could it be any more obvious as the verse just before these verses that we read state very plainly that this world is passing away? Could that be any more obvious? And yet, as I look at the people in this world, we seem to be still very oblivious to what's obvious. There's not wide-scale repentance and faith in Christ. There's not a turning to God in great numbers as, we, as what's obvious all around us. It should be very obvious. This world is dying its days are numbered. It's not eternal. It's, it's winding down. It's decaying. We are dying from COVID or cancer or gun violence. Death is everywhere around us. Could it be any more obvious that what the Bible says is true, that this world is passing away? The effects of sin are seen everywhere. I don't know how it could be more obvious, and yet I'm amazed about how oblivious humanity is to it. You've got the signs of brokenness everywhere, sin, judgment all around, and yet not 
a wide-scale humbling of ourselves and turning to Christ. People are turning to science. People are turning to government. People are turning to entertainment. People are turning to faith in humanity. People are turning to despair. But only the real, the only, only real ultimate solution is to turn to Jesus. And God is making it very plain. He's uncovering deep injustice, deep depravity. He's showing us our utter impotence, our ignorance. Nobody knows what they're doing. There's no, they, who is they? They don't know what's going on. We're completely in absolute dependence on him for everything, for mercy every day. And yet, the world, the world is still largely ignoring God and the salvation that he's provided in Christ and persisting and seeking its own way. But, but, here we are. We're still here. There's still a, a group of sinners gathered together by God's grace out of the wreckage of the world in Christ who are gathering and worshiping him today here, down at, at my church right now, outside, all over our city, all over our world, there's still a remnant, there's still people that God has preserved through all of this, still holding on. And all of this is exactly how God has told us it would be in his word. Scripture has told us plainly what to expect. Today's passage has three verses, it has three sections. It's very easy to follow my three-part outline today. First, we're going to talk about the Antichrist, verse 18. Second, we're going to talk about the falling away, verse 19. And then third, we're going to talk about the anointing, verse 20. So the Antichrist, falling away, anointing. And as we go through these three sections, these three verses, one main point will stand out, and it's just this. God's own go on together, even when the going gets tough. God's own go on together even when the going gets tough. Let's pray one more time. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for telling us how it is. Thank you for giving us a lens to interpret and understand and get perspective in the, of this world. Thank you for uh, coming into this world, so loving this world that you sent your son to provide eternal life. And I pray that those of us who are, uh, have eternal life would celebrate it together today. And I pray that those who may be here or listening online or hearing as they pass by on the street or that we're going to meet as we go home this week that do not have eternal life, that you would, in your mercy and your grace, use us and use your word through us to bring eternal life to a dying world. Lord, we pray for revival. We pray for revival in our hearts, in our churches. We pray for revival in our country, in our world. We pray that you would, you would bring clarity Bring your truth into the midst of all the confusion and mixed messages and alternate realities people want to try to live in. I pray that your reality would, would burst on the scene with clarity into people's minds and that Jesus would be seen as the Savior and people would turn to him and worship him before it's too late. Lord, we pray that you would be moving that way and do it right now as we, we look together at this passage. We pray in Christ's name, amen. All right, the first section, verse 18. 
is about the Antichrist and all that scary end time stuff, right? But don't miss that it starts off with such a tender, comforting, um, wonderful word. How's it start off? It's a very grounding word, isn't it? It's a word that John likes to use to address his readers. He calls them children. Children. It's not, it's not pejorative. It's not a put down. It's, uh, it's affectionate. John's like a, a spiritual father who cares for these, these people that he's writing to, that he knows. Which is a reminder that to be, part of the Christ, to be a Christian is to be part of this family that includes spiritual fathers and mothers looking out for you. Ultimately, we're a family because God the Father has adopted us in the Son and made us his own children. And so we are children of the King. We're sons and daughters of a good God who is the creator of the world. He's the one who's promised to remake this world so we can live with him in it forever. So when we think, we hear that word, it feels good, right? We're children. Yeah, I'm a child. I'm, I'm, that's all I am. I'm just a little kid, but I got a good dad, right? I've been uh, um, really interested to see how my kids, I have five kids, five daughters, between almost 14 and, and three, and uh, through all these last six months, all the craziness that's happening, the ups and downs, the uncertainties, the helicopters hovering over our house, right? I, I mean, all the stuff that's happened, my kids... Have, uh, have been pretty calm. They've been pretty resilient. They've been, um, they felt secure. Now, why is that? Because they know that they have a mom and dad who love them and are taking care of them. How much more is that true for those of us who know God the Father? And we're his children, and we are safe, and we're in his hands, and that's stabilizing in all the craziness. And that's where John starts. Children, all right, now for the possibly scary stuff. Children, it is the last hour. And that kind of could sound foreboding, alarming. There are some tough things about this that we're going to get to in a second, but again, really, the announcement that this is the last hour should be another comforting Thing. This is a hopeful thing. If this world is not your home, then this world is a mess and this world is passing away and falling apart. The fact that this world is ending is a good thing if you know there's another world to come. It's a hopeful thing. So the, the last hour of this scary, sinful, fallen, falling apart world is a good thing. And that's what John says. It's the last hour just before the conclusion of this mess, the full fruition of all of God's promises. We're almost there is what he's saying. One uh, commentator I read reminds us that uh, the end of the world in Christian thought signifies not cessation, but consummation. The end of the world isn't like the end. It's the, it's the fulfillment. It's, it's the beginning of what's next. So this is a good thing. John's phrase, last hour, is pretty much the same thing that other biblical writers mean when they use the phrase last days. It's where we get the, the word eschatology from. It's a Greek word, eschatos, which is translated last, the, the last times. And here's the thing. The New Testament tells us that the last days are now. 
We've been in the last days for the last 2,000 years. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. In these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. I could point to many other places. We've been in the last days. Ever since the incarnation, life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus, we've been living in the last days, the last hour. The next major event on the redemptive historical timeline is the return of Christ to wrap everything up. F.F. Bruce, a New Testament scholar, puts it this way. He says, in the Christian era... It's always five minutes to midnight. I prefer five minutes to daybreak. I think that fits better, but you get the idea. He says, but as the course of things runs along the edge of the final consummation, that edge at times becomes a knife edge. And at such times, the sense of it being the last hour is especially acute. That's what we've experienced in these last six months. Like, whoa! Instances that felt like this may actually carry us over the threshold that ends human history. Is this it? Because this is crazy. It's felt like that many times to believers throughout the last 2,000 years. It's probably felt like that many times to our other brothers and sisters in other parts of the world more recently. And we're just starting to start feeling it here. But the reality has been the same. It's the last hour. We've started to wonder, like, is, is this, when is it going to, are we close to the very end? But it hasn't happened yet. But we're close. And John said that in A.D. 90. He said that it was the last hour in A.D. 90. And here we are in A.D. 2020. And it's still the last hour. How, how is that possible? How can you have a 2,000 year long hour? And there are several ways to go about answering that. But someone has helpfully illustrated and depicted it this way. He said, Up until Christ's coming in the flesh, the course of things ran straight towards that end, nearing it by every step. But now, under the gospel, that course has, if I may, say, if I may so speak, altered its direction as regards his second coming and runs not towards the end, but along it and on the brink of it, and is at all times near that great event, which did it turn and run towards it, would at once run into it. Do you follow that? Maybe I can picture it to you this way. You're hiking to the Grand Canyon. I've never been there, but let's imagine that you start out from Chicago and you're walking to the, to, to the Grand Canyon. That's going to take you a while. You're walking. That's the Old Testament era. Every step gets you closer. Right? Then, with the coming of Christ, you get to, to the Grand Canyon. You get there. But instead of going down in and enjoying it, you turn and you walk along the edge, along the rim, the northern rim of it. And you go all the way. You're walking just around the Grand Canyon on the edge of it. That's the, that's the last days. That's where we're at now. We've, we've gotten to it. That's the Old Testament. We've gotten to Christ, and now we're just on the edge. And we're just waiting for this great sort of seismic shift that's going to happen that's going to rock everything, and we'll fall in. And some people for that, that's going to be a horrifying, terrible experience. It's going to be skull-crushing on the rocks, horror. And for other people, that's going to be glorious participation and enjoyment of the wonder and the immensity and the grandeur of it all. And that's what we're waiting for, and that's where we're at. We're at the last hour. We're on the edge. And we've been walking on that edge. And I haven't been to the Grand Canyon, but I imagine parts of that edge are just like really treacherous. Some of it maybe has a little more sure footing. 
But as you're walking around that edge, times you may feel like, whoa, is this it? And someday it will be it. Very soon. Here we are. We're on the precipice, this 2,000-year-long last hour. And John says, as you have heard that Antichrist is coming. Wait, wait, wait. Where did we hear that? Because this is the first time that word's ever been used in the Bible. Only John uses that term. So why does he assume that his readers have heard that the Antichrist is coming? Maybe because he's told them about it personally? Probably, but there's more. If you look a little closer, this is something that John didn't make up. This is something that is a concept that comes up other places in the Bible. There are hints of, of, of a nefarious sort of future figure in the book of Daniel, right? Jesus draws on that in Mark 13. He talks about the coming abomination of desolation. Paul elaborates on this in 2 Thessalonians. This is a really uh, helpful comparator to look at. He speaks of the man of lawlessness, the same person that John's calling the Antichrist. Paul calls this man of lawlessness, and he tells of a, a final rally of evil behind a single figure right before the revealing of Jesus to eradicate evil once and for all. Listen to 2 Thessalonians 2, 3-5. The day of the Lord will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. That's what John's talking about here. The son of destruction who opposes, opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? So we have this teaching of this final evil figure that was, it was out there. It was in the Old Testament. It was in Jesus. It was in Paul. It was in John, written and verbal. And that's what John's talking about here. Paul in 2 Thessalonians goes on to explain that God is currently holding back the coming of this son of destruction. He's holding him back but he will remove his hand of restraint at some point, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth. I love that picture. Just gone. That's when Christ comes back. So John's saying this great evil will kind of rally behind one figure, this man of lawlessness, this what John calls the Antichrist, and Jesus will come back and destroy him and set up the perfect world forever. Notice that the Antichrist will set himself up in the place of God, taking a seat in the temple. This has led some people to, to think that the Antichrist is a spiritual leader somehow, weaseling his way into the church, manipulating and or duping people into a kind of religious worship of him. Others have, have wondered and, and maybe seen him as a cultural icon. Others have seen him as a political leader, taking away individual freedoms, <clears throat> However he exactly gets his power and his influence, John dubs him anti-Christ. That's the main thing we should notice here. This is, uh, anti means against, right? So against Christ, the real Christ, like antibiotics or anti-aircraft missiles or anti-Semitism, anti-Christ, against him, opposed to him. That's, that's the work of the Antichrist. 
Paul says in 2 Thessalonians that the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan. Makes sense. With all power and false signs and wonders, with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. So the Antichrist is the final embodiment of Satan, that ancient serpent who is opposed to God and everything that he represents. He will hate the truth. He will twist the truth. He will attack the truth. He will confuse and seek to cover the truth. He'll persecute people. He'll dupe people. He'll do anything he can to pull people away from Christ. Anything he can. He'll take this angle, that It doesn't matter. He's not, he has no integrity. He has no consistency, except he hates Jesus. And he'll do everything he can to attack Jesus and his people. The Antichrist will show up one day, demanding everyone's allegiance. And it will be extremely tough to resist him. It'll be tough. God's told us. John says that even now, many antichrists have already come. So the antichrist is not merely one singular final figure. He has many prior manifestations before his full and final rise to power. And John says in chapter 4 of this little letter, in verse 3, that the spirit of the antichrist is in the world already. It's, it's here. Even if he isn't here yet, we don't know. But the spirit of the Antichrist is here, and many small a Antichrists have already come. Paul, back in 2 Thessalonians, said that the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. There have been a multitude of small a Antichrists throughout the last 2,000 years. Therefore, we know it's the last hour. These are probably what Jesus was referring to in Mark chapter 13, verse 22, with the word pseudo-Christ, false Christs. False Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. It's not possible. We're going to see that in a second. That's our last point. But it's tough. It's tough to stand against Satan and all of his devices and attacks and all the, the ways that this fallen world colludes against us to take our eyes off of Jesus and make us not trust him and make us fear and make us divide and make us lazy and make us lulled into sleep. Like all that, it's, it's tough. Many Christians throughout history have thought that they identified the Antichrist even before Christ came. The first time there was a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes uh, who set up an altar to Zeus in the temple of Jerusalem and sacrificed a pig there. And that was an abomination of desolation that prefigured the Antichrist. And then as time went on, different Caesars, uh, different popes, different dictators have all been labeled the Antichrist. But seeing as how life has gone on, they were probably just little a Antichrists. You know, in California... They also deal with earthquakes, right? There's the San Andreas fault line that kind of runs through that state. And at any moment, they're, they're waiting for what they call the big one, right? A massive earthquake that will, will come one day and bring just catastrophic destruction and kind of send California out into the ocean, right? 
Well, they're waiting for the big one, but in the meantime, there have been lots of smaller earthquakes along this fault line, some of them more destructive than others, but they're little previews. They're little previews of the big one. And it's the same thing here with this concept, right? In these last days, there are antichrists preceding the antichrist. There are small little tremors shaking this world, showing us that the foundations aren't steady. This world is passing away. And then one day, the big one will come. It will happen. It will shake everything and nothing will last. Anytime now, the Antichrist could be unveiled, bringing great opposition against all true believers. But Jesus will come and instantly defeat him once and for all. That's our hope. How do we see this around us? We see Antichrist tricking culturally conservative Christians by using or misusing the Bible. We see antichrists luring progressively-minded types who want to use the name Christian in the Bible but gut it of all of its meaning. We see the spirit of antichrist in abusive pastors, and divisive members, and cult leaders, and false teachers. We also see the antichrists. Uh, we also see antichrists in heavy-handed government leaders who want to try to squash the church by removing religious liberties. It's, it's a minefield that we're living in. Don't think that you, you, know, you, got, this all, it's, you got this all figured. It's tough. It's tough to navigate this world because it's anti-Christ at every angle. Wherever you turn, it's against Christ. White supremacists are anti-Christ. LGBTQ activists are anti-Christ. This passing away world is anti-Christ. And there are many people aligned with it, many anti-Christs, and the effects of their words and actions are to undermine the true worship of Jesus according to the gospel as revealed in the Bible, and that makes it tough to be a real Christian, to stay true in our day to keep hope, to be faithful. It's tough. So let's move into the second heading of this, the second section of this sermon. We've seen that it's the last hour. The spirit of the Antichrist is active. It's taking shape in many miniature Antichrists. The world is against Jesus and his followers, against the assertion that we're all sinners against the message that the only way for sinners to be saved is through faith in Jesus Christ. The world is stacked against Christ and his people. But Christ is coming soon and he will judge the world and remake a new one. Until then, it's going to be tough, John knows, John says. And Jesus himself, in the context of talking about those pseudo-Christ, those false Christ, he said that the love of many will grow cold in this last hour. Many people who may have at one point looked like they belonged to Christ and that they were aligned with him will fall away. He told us there'd be days like this. John describes them this way in verse 19. He says, they went out from us. 
Evidently, the Apostle John saw many people who were at some point part of his churches leave and go out and not come back. Maybe they just kind of slipped away and they just kind of stopped coming and it's like, where, where are they at? Or maybe they split and they started their own sex. But they fell away from Christ as he is presented in the apostles' teaching. That's important. And I've seen this way too many times in my life. In my, my, uh, my best man at my wedding. I've seen it in my church. That I pastored for 16 years here in the city. A lot of people come and go. Not always for good reasons. I've seen former worship leaders in our church that have slipped away and are now outspoken antichrist, spewing blasphemous stuff on social media. We've had small group leaders who have left their spouse and left the church. We have former members of our church who may still call themselves Christians but aren't a member of any church anywhere. They show no signs of being pro-Christ, right? I've seen enthusiastic members uh, move away and join uh, scripture-denying churches, quote-unquote churches. I've seen people that I baptized that we had to later do church discipline on for unrepentant sin, and the last I knew, they were doing hot yoga on Sunday mornings. Um, no affection for Jesus. Breaks my heart. It really does. It's, it's really one of the hardest things about ministry and life as you grow old and see many things and many people. It happens a lot, and I'm sure you've seen it here. Some comfort in knowing that John saw it. It happened to him. It happened to Jesus. It happened in, to John in his day. And it happens now still because it's the last hour. People who seemed at one point to be doing well just kind of drop off, go AWOL, get cynical, get lazy, get busy, drift away. Pretty soon they're gone. And I want you to notice that it says, I want you to notice that little word, us. They went out from, from us. That Christianity is a, is a us thing. It's a communal thing. This is not, Christianity is not just, just you and Jesus. Jesus puts you into a community. That's the church. It's an us. It isn't that these people just stopped doing their private, personal Christian things. They might actually have continued doing those things in some respects. It's just that they stopped doing them with the Christian community. They stopped doing them with the us. And that's what it means to be a Christian, to be part of the us. Listen, I'm very cautious. I, I, I think there's still time has to tell, and the data is still kind of unfolding. But it doesn't look good right now. The numbers that I'm seeing, it's still too early to know for sure, but there are signs that this COVID season will be a great sifting of the American church. Church attendance was already going down, but here we are now, uh, and this is not good. I mean, there were still, even in America, large segments of people who uh, were kind of still religiously active, church going, and I think a lot of those people will fall away in this season and as times, 
as it continues to unfold. Earlier this summer, the Barna group study uh, showed that 96% of churches were trying to do some kind of online live stream Sunday service of some kind, but 48% of churched adults admitted that they hadn't even tuned into their own church's online offerings in a month. And then a little bit later in the summer, more recent data shows that one in three quote-unquote practicing Christians has stopped attending church altogether during COVID. One out of three practicing Christians have stopped attending church altogether. I, I could go on. I have a lot of anecdotal stories and, and information about engagement levels with the us, uh, 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 the church kind of trailing off during this period. And it all just makes me wonder, as I, I look at this text, when all is said and done, how many people will have gone out from us? How many will just never really come back? Because communal Christianity, it's tough. It takes long-term commitment. It takes dogged determination. It takes risk-taking. It takes personal freedom sacrificing. It takes selfless love. It takes suffering many inconveniences for others. And I just wonder how many have said that they're Christians, but when the going gets tough, when it's not relatively easy and kind of habitual, will have been shown up to actually not have been genuine believers all along. And that's what John's saying, right? They went out from us but they were never really, truly part of us. They were imposters. They were external Christians without the real, internal substance that comes from the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, being born again, having God's seed abiding in you, the stuff that John's talking about. They weren't real believers. First John's written to give tests to see if you're a real believer. And this is one of the tests to see if someone's faith is real. Does he or she persevere in community? They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. Continuance is the test of reality, as one person has put it. Do you stick it out? You're here, I think, because you are. It's not easy. This mask thing stinks. All this stuff is hard, but, but you know this is real. This is the truth. This is what I need more than anything else. Do you stay engaged? I hope so. Stay connected as best you can through a pandemic and you're eager to be right back as soon as you can or do you just kind of drift off and disappear? It's a good time for that. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us, John says. Sadly, there will always be those who turn out to be faking it. Ditching the church when the going gets tough makes it plain that someone was never really truly a Christian. The New Hampshire Baptist Confession of Faith puts it this way. It says, we believe that such only are real believers as endured unto the end. That their persevering attachment to Christ is the grand mark which distinguishes them from superficial professors, fakers. And John clarifies that attachment to Christ is tied up with attachment to the church, the us. In other words, what he's saying here is that all of us may not really be part of us. Tough times when the anti-Christ forces are felt strongly are times that show 
who is true and who is not. Sobering, right? But here's the good news. This is what John wants to say, that, that God's own go on together, even when the going gets tough. Who are God's own? Let's look there now. Let's look at the last point from this last verse in our passage today. This is verse 20. We've seen the Antichrist. We've seen falling away. Now the anointing. Verse 20 says, But you, you, you have been anointed by the Holy One. John is writing to those who have stuck it out. They're remaining with the us. They didn't go out. They're still there. And he's encouraging them with this evidence that they belong to God, that God has them, that they're God's very own, that they've been anointed. What does that anointed mean? The word that's translated anointed is the Greek word chrisma, uh, and it has a similarity, antichristos, chrisma. They both originate from the same Greek verb, which is krio, which means to anoint. So Jesus Christ, Jesus is the Christ, that means he's the anointed one, right? And we who are with him by faith are anointed as well. But again, what does that mean? What, what does it mean to be anointed? The most literal meaning of the, the word anointed is to have some oil poured over you, right? Uh, you, that's what happened in the Old Testament. Oil was poured, poured over things and people to set them apart as special, to identify them as maybe um, belonging to somebody. John's not saying here that his readers have been anointed like that. He's not saying here that the ones who have remained are the ones that actually had the stuff poured over them. That's not what he's saying. There's actually no record that even Jesus the Christ himself was literally anointed, except for his feet for burial, but that's something different. Acts chapter 10, verse 38, gives us a clue. It states that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. The Spirit of the Lord was on him. He was anointed. And so here, that's what John's saying here, I think. The real believers who remain despite all the forces of the Antichrist all around them are those who have been anointed with the Holy Spirit. They've been set apart as God's own. They've been selected and indwelt by the Holy Spirit himself. If we look at the only other time in the New Testament letters outside of John where believers are said to be anointed, it confirms this understanding that the anointing is done with the Holy Spirit. Listen to 2 Corinthians 1, 21-22, where Paul says, Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. It's God who makes us stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what's to come. A seal of ownership, a deposit, a guarantee, a down payment, a sign of more to come. That's what the Holy Spirit is for the believer, the true believer. Those who are truly part of us, born again into God's family, 
have been anointed with the Holy Spirit and they have him permanently living in them and they are God's own and God's own go on together even when the going gets tough. Amen? Amen. The ever-present Holy Spirit won't let you give up. Remember that time when there were many people uh, who began following Jesus and the, the us kind of seemed to be getting big and then Jesus started to teach some hard things? And many of his so-called disciples turned back, no longer walked with them. They went out from the us. And then Jesus turned to the 12 and he said, what about you? Do you want to go away as well? And what did Peter say? He said, Lord, to whom should we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Flesh and blood had not revealed that to Peter, Jesus says. You see, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And so Peter had the Holy Spirit. And he wouldn't go out from the us. He went on together. Can you detect the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life? During these last six months, has the Holy Spirit been with you, encouraging you, convicting you? He won't let you go. Keeps convicting you of your sin, keeps giving you experiences of God's grace and an inner relish of Christ. He keeps giving you glimpses of God and Scripture. He keeps sustaining you with hope for the future. It's because you've been anointed by the Holy One. And you all have knowledge. That's the last phrase. The last line of verse 20. It's a reference to the new covenant spoken of in Jeremiah 31. There God said, I'll put my law within them and I'll write it on their hearts and I'll be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. That's what it means to be part of the new covenant. You have the Holy Spirit. You know God. You can't leave him. You stick it out. You persevere in faith. Have you experienced that over these last several tough months? That though the world and the flesh and the devil keep trying to pull you away from Christ and his church, the Holy Spirit inside you won't let it happen. He keeps convicting you of your sin. He keeps convincing you of your forgiveness. He keeps comforting you with assurances that you're his he keeps confirming that you know him. You've been anointed. You can't finally fall away. Even in the face of the Antichrist, you won't because you know Christ. God's own go on together even when the going gets tough. And I pray that the Holy Spirit's very active in Uptown Baptist Church. I pray for you guys regularly. Enjoy praying with Pastor Mark and hearing what God's doing here. He's holding you together in the midst of this craziness so just remember the world is passing away it's the last hour it's tough jesus said in this world you will have troubles but take heart i've overcome the world everything that's going on around us is antichrist and many many people have fallen away have gone out from us but you have the anointing of the holy spirit you're god's own god's own go on together even when the going gets tough father
encourage us with this word, even as we think about it, as we sing another song, as we leave, as we go out into the world again for another week. Thank you for your Holy Spirit, and we trust that he's going to keep bringing to mind uh, your word, and uh, he's going to keep us close to you. We thank you for your grace and mercy. Thank you for telling us ahead of time how it is. <laughs> it's uh, evidence that you have spoken, and it matches with this world. We thank you for today. Thank you for the great encouragement it is to be together. Lord, we can't do what we've done already today really online, Lord, we can't. It was so sweet to sing, and I just pray you continue that as we finish out our service. Stir our hearts again to worship you. And we pray in Christ's name. time just uh, as the song is sung let it be a prayer reflect on what's just been preached to us you are my strength when I am weak you are the treasure that I see you are my all in all. Seeking you as a precious jewel, Lord, to give up, I'd be a fool. You are my all. Rising again, I bless your name. You are my only When I fall down, you pick me up. When I am dry, you fill my cup. You are my only Let's sing. Jesus, Lamb of God.
name above all names, Jesus. Jesus, Lamb of God, Lamb of God, worthy, worthy is your name. Son and Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Now, may the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the love of God, our gracious Heavenly Father, and the fellowship of His Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.